frequently, but now, but uh, we used to do it really frequently. And one time I, I, we did one and I thought it was great. It was 25 minutes or so. Yeah. And I looked and I was like, oh, well, this didn't record. So uh, <laughs> it, 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 certain, it certainly happens. All right, cool. All right, so let's do this in three, two, one. All right, good morning, everybody. This is Brandon from the MacRops Podcast. Thanks so much again for joining us. I have the privilege today to talk to Andrew Walker of Rangely Capital. It's an event-driven, value-oriented fund. Uh, Andrew, when he is not uh, being enthusiastic about finance, he is also a full-time cookie monster per his <laughs> Twitter bio slash resume. And so, um, you know, Andrew is the you know, really the go-to source for me and for a lot of other investors on all things media investments. And so we're going to just really dive into media investments as part one, two, and three blog posts. And without further ado, Andrew, I have to ask, since you're a full-time cookie monster, what is your favorite cookie? Oh man, that's, that's tough. You know, uh, I live in New York and I don't know if you've ever had it. The Levine cookies are so good. They're, they're incredible. I have, you know, if, if I was just going basic, you know, just like a chocolate chip cookie with a little sea salt sprinkled on it. Oh yeah. Yeah, you're gonna be you're gonna be disappointed in me, but I stopped. I don't really eat sweets. I stopped eating sweets when I was probably uh, early high school because I wanted to play like really competitive tennis, and okay. I thought I was I thought I was getting chunky, which you know is probably just a body image thing. And in 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 my past, but I was like, you know what, I'm gonna stop eating all sweets, and it's been like ever since then. And now I just can't enjoy a good uh, chocolate chip but i used to be uh i used to be an oreo monster i could just pound oh. a sleeve of, like a sleeve of oreos was was just like a breath of air for me well, I, well i'm sure your listeners only want to listen to you and i talk about uh dieting and stuff but no i'm with you look <laughs> i i do uh i did a whole 30 at the beginning of the year and i felt incredible after and i think yeah. the first thing i broke it with was a sleeve of oreos so yep. I love Oreos, and i also hear like giving up sweets to feel better and lose weight you know it's interesting it's like uh I, I read a lot of stuff. I, I love me. I love sports and media, and I think this will be a, a, a little awkward transition to go there. But you know, like athletes and stuff, all of them talk about, hey, you know, you know, LeBron James. None of the top NBA players really drink or eat gluten or anything anymore because you know your diet is so critical. And as investors, you know, they, you don't really think about it. And Warren Buffett's out there chugging like six or eight cokes a day. But yeah, I, I do think like if you want to hit like kind of peak performance, there is something to hey, a cleaner diet, reducing sweets, reducing refined sugars, like all that really helps. And I think the most focus I felt this year was in January when I was doing the whole 30. So I'm about to go on my honeymoon. But after that, I'm thinking about like uh, reinstituting the clean diet a little bit, you know? Yeah, it's it's actually a perfect segue. So for those that don't follow Andrew on Twitter, A, you're doing a huge disservice to yourself. And B, you wouldn't know that Andrew is almost four days Four days to the exact day, uh, one month married. You're newlywed, correct? Yep, that's right. Awesome. That is fantastic. So, yeah, so he's he's doing this podcast before he heads out on his honeymoon. So, you know, we definitely appreciate it. And, you know, let's kind of dive in um, to your background, how you got into investing. Um, you know, you started the blog. It's been very successful. Tell us about that. Tell us about uh, Rangely Capital and all and, and, and kind of that whole founding story. Yeah, so, yeah, I guess uh, – you know, I, I've always kind of been really interested in the stock market and investing. I, I think when I was a kid, like I was obsessed with compounding. I remember like I would spend hours like building different uh, Excel sheets and looking at compounding. Like if you change one 
like from 1.07% to 1.8% or something like seeing how high, uh, seeing how high a number grew over time. So I've always been fascinated with compounding and investing. Uh, I kind of got my start at JP Morgan and then I went to McKinsey and uh, Bain Capital Credit. It was called Sankey at the time. Now it's Bain Capital Credit. And, uh, you know, especially while I was at McKinsey, uh, I was a little restricted after I left McKinsey. But while I was at McKinsey, I was doing a lot of investing on the side for a personal account. And I was doing really quirky stuff, uh, at, you know, kind of at night while I was at McKinsey, just running a personal account. And while I was there, I actually uh, I ran into my, my partners at Rangeley, Chris Muth and Rob Sterner. Uh, we were like I felt like we were the only people in the world who were looking at these really strange situations. The one the one I always mention is uh, there was a public company. It was called Outdoor Media and they had the outdoor cable channel. And they had this really strange merger where someone offered, I might be a little off on my numbers, but someone offered to buy them out for $8 per share. And Stanley Kroenke, who is a billionaire many times over, he owns, uh, if I remember correctly, the Colorado Avalanche. I believe he now owns the LA Rams. Uh, he married into the Walmart fortune. He came in, he was a shareholder, and he came in over the top with an offer to buy them for $8.75. And you know, I, I think we'll talk. Well, I don't know where, where we'll go with this. But, you know, one of the things with me with uh, investing is, you know, like kind of reading the fine print and seeing where the incentives lie. And in this offer, Stanley Kroenke, uh, you, you know, there's a thing in all merger contracts that say, hey, you know, if this merger breaks for whatever reason, here's the recourse you have. And normally it'll be, you know, this is a billion dollar merger. If we break this agreement, because for some reason, you know, if it's a really good contract, it might be hundred million or it might be 50 million if it's an okay contract. Well, in this contract, Stanley Kroenke said, no, this contract will not break. I personally guarantee that this will go through. I am worth $5 billion and this is a 200, this is a $200 million deal. My personal balance sheet guarantees this will go through. And I thought that was really interesting. And uh, I made it a huge position because he made this offer and the stock was trading for like $8 and 70 cents and the offer was 875. So here yeah. you have this incredible guarantee and you combine that with a bidding war, right? Yep. And uh, so there's no downside and there's literally unlimited upside. Uh, so I thought I was the only person in the world who noticed this. And it turned out that Chris and Rob had actually done it and had sized it up accordingly. And they were writing online. Uh, I, I was writing online at the time under a, a, an old blog handle, uh, Whopper Investments. And we, we kind of stumbled over each other through that. And we stayed in touch. That actually worked out really well. And we stayed in touch over the years. And when I was uh, I was at Bain Capital and I was kind of thinking about next steps and I was thinking about staying there because they were great people and I really liked it. But I'd been talking to Chris and Rob and we decided to do something a little more entrepreneurial and launch a, a range of capital special opportunities, which is the fund I launched. Uh, we're coming up on our four year anniversary now. Oh, congratulations. So yep. take us take us through Rangely Capital. You guys are, you know, event driven, value oriented. What do you look for and what is your ideal uh, company or situation? Yeah, so we we run two funds over here. Chris runs the uh, kind of range of capital event fund, which is the fund he launched about 11 years ago. And that's looking for event-driven situations. You know, it can be merger arbitrage, spinoffs, that type of stuff. And then uh, I run the special opportunities fund, which, you know, there, there's often an event component to it, but it's a much more value-focused, a lot longer-term focused uh a lot more concentrated. So, you know, like uh, what our position sizes generally, our top five to seven positions make up about 80 to 85% of the portfolio. So a lot more concentrated, long-term value focused. 
Right. Awesome. Cool. So, you know, I'd, I'd love to I'd love to, you know, chat a little bit more about about Rangeley. But the main purpose of this is and, and, and where I think most people get value is really diving into media investments. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, just first off, I want to say you're doing a tremendous job with those guides that you're posting. I know that oh, I'm getting you. a ton of value and I know the the broader value community is is really reaping the benefits of just you putting down your thoughts. And so, you know, if 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 this podcast is anything, I hope this is maybe just an auditory regurgitation of, you know, some of your thoughts about the media investment guides. And so I want to start with, really, I want to start with cord cutting, because that's kind of how you led in terms of an intro. And so, um, you know, you really broke it down well in terms of a unit economic way of thinking about cord cutting. And could you just chat with us about, you know, the dynamics of cord cutting, why it's so dangerous and why it gets dangerous at scale? Yeah, so uh, let me just back uh, back up a little bit. So, the kind of the 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 reason cord cutting was the launching off point was uh, a major investment for us for the past couple of years has actually been the cable companies. And at the time we invested in the cable companies, there was this huge fear of cord cutting, right? Mm. And our our basic thought was actually if you kind of look at the economics, cable companies don't make a lot of money from video products. They make all of their money from selling you high-speed broadband internet. And there was this really, sm- the there were a lot of ways you could figure this out, but the best way was there's this really small company, Cable One, that uh, had decided about six years ago, we don't make money from video products, we're only gonna sell broadband products. And their stock has been terrific, they're crazy profitable, all this sort of stuff. So we thought cord cutting was a misnomer and people misunderstood it from the, the cable company side. And, you know, uh, over, especially over the summer, I I kind of was looking at the, I've always had cable cu- cord cutting in my mind as something that people kind of might misunderstand because of my experience with cable company. And especially over the summer, I mean, you would look at the, these legacy media stocks and they, they were just getting absolutely hammered. And right. I didn't, it, you know, you would see people on both sides of the aisle where some people would look at the broadcasters and say these trade for five times uh, the broadcasters who, you know, own your local Fox or ABC or CBS stations and say these trade for five times free cash flow. These are incredible. They're going to buy back tons of shares like they they have the local Fox affiliate. So they're their money good. They're going to get uh, included in all the skinny bundles. Uh, they're the best value investments of all time. Or you see on the other side, you know people looking at an ESPN and people would be going crazy over the cord cutting numbers and uh, they'd be losing six to 8% of their subs per year. And I kind of thought neither was the exact right answer. I thought cord cutting was a lot more complicated than people gave credit for. And I didn't think people kind of understood the flywheel that could happen with cord cutting. So what is, what is the biggest misconception? And, you know, you kind of mentioned it in terms of the flywheel, like what is, what is, what is the one thing that people miss when they think of cord cutting? You know, I, I think the biggest thing people miss is how 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 it doesn't take too much more cord cutting for the system to kind of accelerate and unravel. You know, uh, I think people miss the the fixed cost structure that comes with sports rights packages and stuff that these guys have signed up. You know, ESPN has the NBA for another 10 years at uh, I can't remember the number exactly off my head, but it, it's something like five hundred million dollars per season or something. And they signed that thinking that they were going to have. 100 million subs because they had 100 million subs at the time and they said hey we're espn nobody's ever going to have a cable bundle without us and then all of a sudden cord cutting happens and people people start cutting the cord and all of a sudden espn has 80 million subs and what used to be you know five dollars per sub per year 
at 80 million subs, it's all of a sudden uh, about $6, $6.25 per sub per year. If it goes to six, 60 million subs, all of a sudden it's $8 per sub. So the that negative operating leverage, I think a lot of people hadn't started factoring that in. Um, you know, I think a lot of people look at the bundle and don't understand that most of the costs in there is sports, but also most of the people who want the value are super sports fans. I, I just think there's a lot of interesting stuff and it's kind of tough to dive into all the angles in it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it, you know, it's, you, you, you nailed it. I'm actually looking at that post. And one of the things that really stuck out to me is in terms of, you know, and you just kind of mentioned there is the value of sports versus how much, you know, sports charges in terms of the whole bundle. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, basically what you say, and 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 I'm kind of reading this directly, it says, you know, let's pretend that after some negotiations, sports is going to increase their fees to 12.25 a month, while news goes to 10.50 and entertainment goes to 11. And mm-hmm. it's kind of this whole perpetuating cycle, which you mentioned as the flywheel, where over time, you know, the people that really love the sports, you know, yes, they will pay up, but the bundle itself is more expensive. And so that causes customers to drop and you and you and you have a great you know, simple model that really shows all of this where, you know, the cost per sub goes up, but now you're losing subs and you're losing value. Yeah. You know, I, the, one of the pieces, and I think I put this in the third part was when I was right out of college and especially when I had moved to New York, like all I wanted from TV was the ability to watch my local sports teams from when I was in New Orleans, the Pelicans and the saints. And I, and I subscribed to NBA league pass and, uh, some and NFL, uh, what it and if I guess it's NFL red zone, like, red zone uh, or something. No, it's the NFL one that lets you watch all out of market games. And uh, oh, you know, okay. I subscribed to those for I think it was like $500 per year, right? Yeah, and I kind of realized, hey, when I was in New Orleans, I was paying $80 per month for a TV package, and all I was watching was the Saints and Pelicans. So, like, for me, sports was worth $80 per month, and it probably would have been worth more, right? Uh, yep. so. ESPN, people look at ESPN and they say, oh, ESPN makes $8 per month per sub. Like that's higher than anything. And it's, and that's true. But at the same time, like for me, I would have paid $80 per month for ESPN and, you know, a couple other like local sports things. So people look at sports and say it's the highest cost part of the bundle, but it's actually the thing like sports super fans will pay so much more for it. Sports actually subsidizes everything else for those fans. And it creates really interesting, uh, it creates a really interesting model. Like, as you were saying, I kind of lay, lay the numbers out there, but if I would pay $80 per month and ESPN is only getting $8, ESPN has a lot of incentives to raise pricing because they are creating, they are providing a lot of value that is not getting captured in there. Exactly. Exactly. So, and, you know, go, and that's something that I really want to discuss in, in, in parts parts three, because we really, part three, you really dive into sports rights and, 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 and where to invest in sports rights. And so, you know, I'm definitely looking forward to getting to that part. Um, but, you know, just circling back to part one in terms of local networks, um, you know, you chat about how broadcasters really make their money from two places, um, you know, distributors pay them retrans fees and then advertising fees. But you also note in that same paragraph is the rapid growth of retransmission revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is, how is that going to impact local broadcasters? going going forward yeah so so every every channel when they're carried on a cable when a cable company carries them they're going to get uh transmission fees right so they'll negotiate with cox or whoever and say hey we want two dollars per month and cox will come back with a dollar per month and they'll settle on a dollar fifty or something well for the local broadcasters because they uh a local broadcaster is affiliated with 
the Fox network or the CBS network or whoever, they have to strike a deal to uh, with Fox or CBS to carry all their programming. And there's been were you, you were talking about reverse retrans, right? Not retrans. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So the local broadcaster uh, recently it's come up where actually trans, retransmission consent where uh, f- the Fox affiliate or whoever gets paid by the cable companies is only is only about 20 years old. So 20, 25 years old. So it's pretty recent. But about seven or eight years ago, CBS started going to that local affiliate and saying, hey, if you, you get retransmission fees, most of that is coming from our value. We want a piece of that. So the local Fox affiliate would say, all right, well, Cox gives us a dollar per sub. CBS, we're going to give you 25 cents per sub. And over time, that has actually been going up. So, you know, 10 years ago, this fee stream was non-existent for the networks. Uh, five years ago, they might be getting 25% of what the local broadcaster got. So the local affiliate would get a dollar and they'd give 25 cents to CBS. Today, it's starting to get to about 50-50. And I think I've got uh, a chart in there if people want to go refer to the blog that shows kind of how the retrans and reverse retrans has grown over time for uh, its great television. And it follows the exact – it kind of follows the same path I'm talking about. It starts at zero, and it goes yeah. to about 50% over a series of about eight years. And, you know, to me, when I look at the broadcasters, one of the reasons I'm – I don't want to say I'm negative on them because the price is very low. But one of the reasons I'm so hesitant is – I look at what they provide and almost all of the value they they provide seems to be coming from the network that they're affiliated with. And if all the value is coming from the network they're affiliated with, over time, it seems like all the value should go to the network, right? Right, right. The broadcasters are really, they are the network programming that they get from Fox and they are local news. And I'm not saying local news isn't valuable, but local news seems pretty commoditized, right? Like every network has local news. If you drop your local Fox station, nobody's going to go cut the cord and drop their cable provider because they're not getting their local news team. <laughs> they, can go, they can switch channels and get their local news teams. They're going to cut the cord because they're not getting the NFL or they're not getting, you know, I, I think their favorite TV shows. I think that's out, but it, maybe they're not getting their, you know, NCIS and Big Bang Theory and stuff. But it's really because they're not getting sports is why they're going to drop it or. If they're a Fox News addict, they're not getting their live Fox News. They might drop that. Right, right. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's something we'll we'll, we'll dive into the Fox and, and CBS dynamic as well. And so before I kind of move on to part two, um, you mentioned three major concerns that you have with the local broadcasters. I mean, obviously, you know, you think that they're cheap in general, um, most namely NXST. Uh, you think is kind of one of the cheapest. But the third reason, or I guess the third major concern you have is the level of advertising revenues. And, you know, basically what you say is, I'm not convinced that this level of advertising revenues is anywhere close to sustainable. So are you betting, and and and, and this is something for, for, for investors that are looking to model such broadcasting companies where, you know, are you anticipating a reversion to the mean in terms of advertising revenues or you know do we see something where 2020 political campaigns and it just kind of bucks that mean reversion trend and just keeps going higher yeah so so most uh most broadcasters are all broadcasters you kind of can't value them on a last trailing month basis because in odd years there are, there's no political revenue and then in even years there are political cycles and the political cycles you know increases demand for ads and that increases ads yeah. increases ad spend so most people value them they kind of take the average of two years earnings to value them just so you kind of smooth out that cyclicality yep. obviously you know a big bull case for a, a lot of these broadcasters has been 
2020 is going to just be an absolute bonanza of a political year. And you can already right. see that. And like, I think a really interesting, like Michael Bloomberg, you see he enters the race and within one week he spent more on TV advertising than like every competitor of his combined. It's crazy. And you look at that and a, I mean, that's interesting as a near term kind of cash flow next year is going to be insane from this advertising, but B, it, it also might be interesting, you know, politics going forward might just be bloodbaths and it might just be like, Every billionaire out there wants to go and try and I'm going to put it kind of in air quotes, but buy an election. Right. And if that's right, the best way to reach an audience that's engaged with your advertising is kind of still TV. Uh, So I think that's interesting from the near term. But in the longer term, you know, you look at these guys and every every broadcaster or cable company you look at, they're talking about, hey, the upfronts are so strong. Pricing for the ad markets are so strong. It's crazy. We're going to have a great advertising year. And that makes some sense. Strong economy, a lot of demand for uh, getting goods in front of consumers. But on the other hand, like, you know, if I look at CBS, they are let's take ESPN again. They used to have 100 million subs. They now have 80 million subs. Right. Ratings for ratings across the border going down. ESPN, any channel ratings across the border going down. But advertising rates continue to go up. I mean, that means that advertisers are implicitly paying significantly more per eyeball. Correct. And I just wonder how long that can last, especially, you know, you, we say they're paying more per eyeball. But if you I, I don't know if you watch any network television, but if you watch network television and you can see like they've there have been some studies where someone watching network television, the moment it switches over to commercial, they've pulled up their phone and they're on Facebook or they're on Twitter or they're kind of browsing the web or something. Right. So, oh, yeah. Yep. I, I think advertisements, they're probably less effective today than they were 10, 15, 20 years ago, just because your attention isn't glued to the screen like it used to be. Now, the exceptions that might be live sports where you don't know when the commercial break ends and you kind of have to pay attention throughout the whole thing. But right. my guess is advertisements are less effective than they were 20 years ago. I don't have data on that. And look, the companies are still paying, so maybe they're seeing they're just as effective. But Either way, the ratings are way down, so they're paying way more per eyeball. And I, I kind of wonder how long that can last until kind of the bottom falls out and advertising rates go down. And if you see advertising rates start to go down while eyeballs are going down, like you could see in a recession where all of a sudden you've bought something at five times EBITDA and then advertisement advertising has been cut in half and five times gone to 20 times and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, this wasn't a value investment. This was like kind of peak cyclicality. Yeah, exactly. And it's almost interesting to think of in terms of, so, you know, I did, I did some study into, you know, I did a write up on Fox, obviously that's kind of, um, you know, I guess the birth of, of the idea of getting on the podcast is because you and I were exchanging ideas back and forth, um, you know, just about Fox and, and CBS. And one of the things I was, I was, writing about was just how passionate in terms of ad money spent on TV, just how passionate um, the viewers are that watch, you know, call it Fox News, where, you know, it's an older demographic. And so people that are going to vote or people that are going to care, you know, maybe maybe those are the type of people that actually watch the TV for the longest amount of time and don't necessarily pick up their phones. And so it's interesting. So maybe these companies that are spending advertising money know, okay, you know, our, our average viewer is actually, you know, it's not, it's, it's a 45, 55, 65 year old. Um, you know, it's not these, 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 these 20, 30 year olds that are going to pick up their phones. No, look, I think that's right. And the other thing is I, you know, as I was saying, like, I think the, the effectiveness of advertising has gone down because I've seen the studies that show people open up their Facebooks as soon as advertisers come up. You yeah. know, it, it would be surprising to me if uh, most of these advertisements, I mean, 
they are significant investments and they're these significant investments are not being made by dumb people you know they're going to stop if they don't see a return on it and it, despite what i despite what i said there like i i would bet they have data that says hey if we're making this advertisement despite all of these negatives we're talking about it we're we're currently getting a good return on it right uh, you know I, I, if you follow the otas like expedia zillow all these guys they they're constantly talking about hey we're increasing our TV budget because we found like TV advertising is the best return we're getting on our advertising right now. So I do think, again, there's like kind of a near term bullish case there. But I do I do worry that longer term pricing can come down. Ratings continue to come down. It, it does seem a little bit unsustainable. Right. The longer term headwinds are still very much in yep. play, although there's a shorter term tailwind. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. So let's let's kind of dive in now to part two, which you dive into Fox and CBS, mainly mainly CBS, uh, just because I just just for disclosure, are you you are long CBS? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, it's not a huge position, but uh, okay, I, we've kind of got a basket of three or four legacy media companies that make up a small posi- a, a small position in total. So yes, CBS okay. is part of that. Okay, cool. Take me through kind of what makes you most excited about CBS. I know you chat about this in the post, but you know, you've got CBS, you've got the merger with Viacom, you've got, you know, all of CBS's original content, which they just blast um, so much content. Take us through kind of what you're most excited about. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think the starting place is CBS. It's now merged with Viacom. So it's Viacom CBS, but the starting place is it's cheap, right? It, it probably trades at around eight times price to earnings. So not EV to EBITDA, which is before taxes and everything, like eight times price to earnings is about where CBS trades. And that, that's a pretty nice starting point for evaluation. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, one of our big things here is eight times price to earnings is great, but I, you know, a lot of people love to run these screens where they'll go and they'll pull the S&P 500 and they'll say, hey, here are the 20 cheapest companies in the S&P 500. Let me start there. And I've always been a little bit hesitant with that because that's something a computer can do, right? Like that, yes. I think 40, 50 years ago, I think that would have been a great way to make money. But today, I just don't think there's edge there. I think you want to find stuff that kind of isn't in the numbers. And when I look at CBS, you know, they're making this massive investment into CBS All Access, which I I don't even want to call it their Netflix competitor because it does not have the library and the investment in new content. But, you know, it's their direct-to-consumer offering that they're doing there. And they're making a big investment. And doing, exactly. a direct to, doing a direct-to-consumer video play, it's expensive. You know, Disney's going to burn hundreds of millions or billions of dollars on Disney+, Plus, and it's not going to break even until, I think, 2024 is when they say they'll start to break even, despite the fact that they're probably going to come out with, what, 20 million subs by the time the year ends or something? I mean, Yeah, because yeah, they're, they're at 10 million right now, correct? They were at 10 million, like, day one. So yes. yeah, it, just, kind of, just mind-boggling. I mean, it's mind blowing. And I, I actually just subscribed. I'm going to be watching The Mandalorian on the flight over to uh, to Tokyo. So I'm excited for that. But, you know, the, these things are expensive. Like, yes, there's a tech component to it, but you also have to go do the marketing expense to uh, go put out everything. And like if I look at CBS, you know, if you watch a, if you watch an NFL game, you're going to get hit with five advertisements for CBS All Access during the, that game. Like that's a real expense right there. Right. The opportunity cost of not putting other advertisements there. And then obviously the big expense is you have to go out and CBS is investing into a lot of Star Trek series and stuff. And the cost for that, it's very expensive to go make five brand new Star Trek series or whatever it is, right? And you're not going to get that cost because you are you don't sell it up front. Like you're hoping to get the subs and have a lifetime value. Very expensive to do one of these things. But when you look at CBS, you're playing eight times price to earnings. 
and that earnings is depressed because they're making this big investment into CBS All Access. And, you know, I said in the post, but if I wanted to, I'm, I think I could get CBS down to five times price earnings, right? I would shut down CBS. I would sell the rights to Star Trek, to Netflix tomorrow. I, I'd go and take every, every series I had and sell them off at the highest bidder. So I'm excited about that. They just merged with Viacom, which, you know, I, I think getting CBS, Viacom, obviously, like a Nickelodeon or an MTV, I do think they face challenges in the future, right? Uh, especially yeah. MTV. But there is a really deep backlog of library and characters and brands that really resonate with a lot of people. And I think over time, kind of, you know, getting Rugrats and getting Doug and getting all these different series from Nickelodeon onto CBS All Access, I think that helps build the library. There's a lot of synergies there, which uh, I think, you know, you start at eight times price earnings and you start adjusting for all that. And it looks cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And I think there's real sustainable value there, right? Like a lot of these brands, they... Uh, a lot of these uh, content things they own are really deep brands with rich histories that uh, it's not quite Game of Thrones level IP, but it's some of the best IP in the world. Got it. Got it. So let's talk for a second in terms of CBS, um, you know, kind of in general for 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 the networks, you say the bull thesis is, is pretty simple. They get paid a lot less on a per eyeball basis than mm-hmm. anyone else. And if they can correct that over time their payments should go up. And you've already mentioned kind of the different ways they can correct that, you know, going to direct to consumer, skinny bundles. But one of the things we haven't chatted about yet is 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 what you call running a blackout or two until distributors pay them more. Talk about the dynamics of blackouts and why they're so disruptive. Yeah, so I think this might apply a little bit more to RSNs, but it certainly applies to the networks too. But, you know, it, it, for every channel, they're, they're going to go strike a, uh, a deal with a with a cable provider to provide them for the next five years. And at the end of five years, there'll be a negotiation, right? And that negotiation, it, it's it's a tough time because if the cable channel decides, hey, we can't meet what you're paying, they're going to drop them. And any person who loves that cable channel's, uh, any person who loves that cable channel's content is pretty quickly going to drop their cable provider and switch to a different cable provider who offers, uh, who offers that channel or whatever content they have or whatever, right? Right. So- uh, you know, you know, I think it's particularly relevant with RSNs or with sports or something, because if you dropped, let, let's ignore the fact that NBC has sports, but if you dropped NBC and they had the good place and you were a good place, super fan, right? There are other ways to get the good place. You can wait till the next day and you can go watch it on Hulu, or you can wait till the season's over and you can go catch it on Netflix. And, you know, if you, if you're a net, if you're a good place, super fan, uh, and you miss that episode and you watch it a week later, it's really not that big a deal. Kind of the only show that would be you have to watch it live that I can remember is probably Game of Thrones at this point, right? Yeah. But for sports, if you miss it live, you've basically missed it. And if you're a super fan, like you you need to watch it in real time the moment it comes up. And that's something that you're willing to switch providers for. Correct. Uh, so for the networks, that's a really big stick, right? Going to the cable company and saying, hey, we have 100,000 super fans. If you dr- you pay us right now, $2 per month. If you drop us, you're going to lose $140 per month in revenue because people are going to drop their video service and they're going to drop their cable service and they're going to go to a different provider, right? So that's a really powerful stick. But that stick goes away the moment that you, about a week after you black out, because once you black out, the cable provider instantly starts losing subs. And once those subs are lost, they're probably not coming back. You know, how many people are going to switch cable providers and then switch back a week later because the cable provider 
re-got whatever thing they wanted. So it's a very delicate edge that they play in these negotiations when they're looking when they're uh, looking to black out or negotiate with a cable provider. What do you think is the reason? Oh, let me phrase this. What do you think is the reason why it's so hard for consumers to switch back after a blackout? Uh, you, you know, it's just not top of mind. Like getting your getting your broadband and your video is kind of you've subscribed. As long as you're not having issues with it, you're probably not going to look to switch. You know, like uh, it, again, I mentioned we're, we've been long cable providers, and cable overbuilders have had a really tough go of it because. If you overbuild a town that already has cable internet, everyone's already hooked up to that cable provider, right? right. So you're going to go to them and let's say you're paying $100 per month. The overbuilder is going to come and they're going to eat, they're going to put flyers all across the town that says, hey, come take our service. If they press it $100 per month, nobody's going to go through the hassle of disconnecting their equipment, sending their equipment back, getting new equipment, getting a new install done. Like nobody's going to go through that hassle. So you have to underprice them to, uh, to lure subs. And often, you know, $5 per month, probably isn't worth that much of a hassle. $10 per month might not be worth that much of a hassle. You're going to have to underprice it by $20 per month, and then it's going to be a ground fight where you have to go get the message out and take sub by sub by sub. And guess what? The other cable provider can match any discount you do. So you come in at $80 per month, they just cut their price to $8 per month. It's a really long slog to do that. Yeah. Well, with the with the blackout, when you lose subs, same thing. You look, you're, you're a sub. You love the NFL. The NFL gets blacked out. You switch providers because you need the NFL. Well, now your provider is good enough, right? And you're you're not going to just because your old provider got the NFL back. Now, are you really going to go through the hassle again of mailing in all your equipment, getting more equipment mailed back to you, making that big switch? Like it's kind of disruptive. You know, the old stories of waiting a full day for the cable company to come to your house. Do you want to wait a full day? And in this case, you're switching, you've already made the switch once, and you're probably not even switching for a discount or anything, right? It's not like an overbuilder who's coming in and offering discounted prices to switch. So you're really just wasting all of your time for what reason? Yeah, yeah, just super, super high embedded switching costs at that point yep. that, that, yeah, yeah, that the consumer just doesn't want to do. And so before before we go into part three and really talking about sports, I, re- I, I want to spend some time discussing really the stranglehold that sports rights has on companies like Fox and CBS in terms of just pricing power, which which you mentioned throughout, you know, parts two and even part three, where, you know, a lot of these is just Fox in particular, you know, which 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 I am long. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, my 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 bull thesis is that, you know, people people are like you said, they're they're fanatics. They're going to love live events. So really, Fox is an asset for those people that are looking for live events that are that are that are wanting to capture that advertising where eyeballs are there. But but the 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 bear thesis is that Fox has said multiple times that they'll do whatever it takes to keep sports rights. And so that's always kind of dangerous for me because it you know you kind of get into a highest bidder war where people will do whatever it takes to extend sports rights you know out to 2030, 2035 and stuff like that. Yeah, so I, I guess there's two things. You know, you're long Fox and it's funny cuz when when you say you're long Fox or when I think of Fox like I think of Fox versus CBS, right? But yeah. Fox, it, it, it's funny, like, what, 70%, 80% of their earnings comes really from Fox News? So exactly. even though we think of Fox and we think of the NFL and all this type of stuff, it's actually Fox is really, it's really a better on Fox News with a little bit of upside or downside from what the Fox network itself does, right? So I, I guess that's one thing that we can go back to that in a second. But with the sports, you know, to me, it's why do you subscribe, why do you watch ESPN these days? 
20 years ago, it might have been because the sports center was a really important part, part of your life, right? You There was no Twitter or anything. So if you want to see highlights, if you wanted to get caught up on scores and what's going on, or if you wanted to see really educated NFL insiders talk about the NFL, the only place to really get that was ESPN. So ESPN had huge power. Not only did they have live sports, they had the only place to hear educated people talk about sports. Well, exactly. Well, over the last 10 years, the first piece of that, hear educated people talk about sports, I mean, that's dead and gone, right? You can, <laughs> you can hear that yep. everywhere. Yeah. And that ESPN makes a lot of it available for free, right? Like, I, I'm a big basketball fan, and the Low Post podcast has Zach Lowe, and he they just put out, he's an ESPN employee, but they just put out the Low Post podcast for free. Or he writes a column on ESPN.com that's available yeah. for free. So that piece of that low cost piece of moat that's evaporated. At this point, the reason ESPN commands seven, eight, nine dollars per sub is because they carry Monday Night Football, they carry most of the national NBA games, they carry some other stuff, but they carry tons of MLB stuff. The, those are the real headliners. Oh, and uh, the College Football National Championships are on ESPN. Yep. They carry all that. So cable companies are kind of beholden to ESPN where they have to carry that or else they're going to lose lots and lots of sports subs. But ESPN, all of their value is coming from this live from this live content that they hold, right? And from these live sports. And over time, my thesis is very similar to how all the, all the broadcasters' value comes in their affiliation with the networks. And over time, I think the networks can extract most of that value. With uh, ESPN and the sports leagues, over time, all the value is coming from the sports leagues, not from anything ESPN kind of does organically. And over time, I think all the value accrues to the sports leagues in that scenario. And, you know, you might say, oh, well, ESPN is the best nationwide platform. And I think there's something to that. But there are plenty of other nationwide platforms, right? Like, right. there are the broadcasters. CBS or Fox can bid for these games. Eventually, there's Amazon. And I, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, there was an article. Amazon got, uh, I think it was the Premier League rights. And Amazon UK saw the highest number of signups they, I think they've ever seen the day that wow. they got the Premier League rights. And, you know, I look at that and I say, A, what a validation of the power and value of live sports. And B, hey, Amazon, they're not doing this because they want to have a profitable a profitable video thing. They're doing this because they want to have a profitable Amazon Prime, like overall customer lifetime thing. And I exactly. look at that and say, hey, guess what? Sports can drive value and it can drive customer awareness. And if I'm ESPN and I'm only monetizing on sports, I'm probably not going to be able to monet- to pay as highly as someone like an Amazon or an Apple who can use it and who can value it through, who can get a uh, valuation out of it through a lot of other means that actually create a lot more value. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And you also mentioned in one of your posts where the Yankees are actually working with Amazon to start streaming some games. Yeah. So the Yankees, they, uh, you know, their local games are through the yes network and, uh, Fox used to own a big piece of the yes network. And as part of their deal with, uh, Disney Fox sold the RSNs and the Yankees had a right of first refusal they bought back the Yes Network, and uh, Amazon is now a minority owner in it. So they're working with Amazon to str- live stream some of their local sports rights. But you know, you're seeing Amazon really start to dip their toe into the waters. They they rebroadcast the Thursday. They have the streaming rights to the Thursday night football games that Fox broadcasts. They've got that. They they're starting to get some soccer rights. They're really dipping around the edges here in the U.S. But you know, I, I think you're starting to see some proof points be borne out for Amazon. Hey. Having sports rights drives uh, drives customer value, li- drives customer acquisition. And if you see that Amazon's got a very deep war chest, they can get aggressive. And if Amazon offers $2 billion and ESPN offers $1.9 billion, you're probably going to go with the extra $100 million from Amazon. 
Yep, exactly. And also you know, speaking speaking of Amazon, just as a Washington Redskins fan, it's been fun to see these rumors that Jeff Bezos might want to try to buy the Redskins at some point in time. Um, praying to God that that actually happens. Uh, you, you know, I hadn't <laughs> seen those, but I hope. But uh, you, you know, we mentioned cable as a big investment, and our, our second largest investment is actually MSG. And yep. once a year, there will be something where someone says so-and-so billionaire can save the Knicks. It can buy the Knicks and be the savior <laughs> of, uh, of New York basketball. And just, please God. Yes. Let it be. So both because I love basketball and I own MSG. Yeah. And actually I, it's, it's, it's funny you mentioned MSG. I had Richard Howon. He runs stock spinoff investing.com mm-hmm. and he, um, him and I had a real good discussion about MSG. So when I, so that's going to be released, uh, tomorrow. So that, you know, if, if you're for those that are interested in MSG, we kind of dive a little bit deeper into that. Um, but I kind of want to get into, um, you know, just to red team my Fox thesis a little bit more. One of the things that you mentioned that I thought was really was really intuitive is 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 the idea of, you know, Fox is really a bet on Fox News. Right. Which is, mm-hmm. you know, both both the good where you get the cult like fanaticism, very high retention rates. Um, you know, really effective advertising. But you also get the bad of Fox News, which is, you know, it's at the mercy of, you know, whatever's going on in the political world. And you mentioned really two things that I think are interesting. Just one is, you know, what if we're at what if we're at peak hysteria for political activity where, you know, what if we don't have um, you know, what if what what if the next president doesn't utilize social media as much? What if they don't interact with the, you know, with the broader networks as much? And then two, what if Trump decides to create his own network? Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, it's, 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 it's these two kind of things. I don't know where, where those things lie in terms of probability buckets, but if you just want to flesh out those kind of uh, potential red flags for people that are, that are long or bullish on Fox. Yeah. So look, Fox News right now, it, it's the dominant cable, cable channel, right? I, I think it's the most important non-sports cable channel in there. Their ratings, I, I believe they're always the number one. I, I think ESPN beats them when they've got, you know, a Monday Night Football or something, but Fox News is always dominant. And it's kind of the perfect thing for today's cable bundle, right? It has to be watched live. There's not a lot of rewatchability, but you have to watch it live. You have to watch the breaking news, all this type of stuff. Uh, My worry with Fox News is perfect for today's cable bundle. But first, the cable bundle is certainly unraveling. And right now, his earnings are based on 80 million subs. And what happens when they're at 60 million subs? Fox News certainly takes pricing. But, you know, can they offset losing another 25% 25% of their sub base, uh, right. it, it starts to look, you know, there's that downside, which is you can model that, but it, it's tough if the sub losses start accelerating, it's tough to get super comfortable with it because every sub is basically pure profit for them. Yep. And then B, you know, it, 2016, most people thought Trump was going to lose the election. And the rumor was that he was talking to, I think, Roger Ailes, and they, they were talking about launching the Trump branded news channel. And if he did that and all of a sudden Trump had competition, all of a sudden Fox News had competition, you know, what does that do for right now? They are the premium cable channel. If there's competition, what does that do? Does all of a sudden does your local cable provider look at it and say, hey, I can black out Fox News, which is the most expensive non-sports channel on here. Right. I can black them out and replace them with the Trump channel and my subscribers are going to be just fine with it, you know, or maybe the first go around, they don't. But the second time they, they start saying, hey, Fox, we'll do it. We'll black you out and we'll we have already got the Trump channel on here. Our viewers will just switch over there. Or if Trump comes on and he says, hey, you know, you see once a month or so Fox will have I don't really watch the cable channel, but 
you'll mm-hmm. see Trump will say, oh, they've got this horrible left wing person on there. They don't understand us anymore. Why don't right. you watch right. the One Action Network or something? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. No. And it's 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 it's, you know, that's actually a perfect segue because I was listening to um, the podcast or to I was, I was listening to Tobias's podcast with uh, Vitaly Katzenelson yesterday and he was discussing the idea of tribalism and what's interesting is a lot of the a lot of the asset value or a lot of the profitability value for Fox News in particular is just fueled by this tribalism aspect but it's interesting when you start thinking about well what if there's another competing network that doesn't rely on tribalism per se because you know you're kind of in the same sandbox it's just a different viewpoint. So it's not, you know, left versus right. It's right versus some other alternative to right. And I don't mm-hmm. think we know what that could look like going forward. No, I, I think that's I think that's exactly right. You know, or do it's not hard. Like Fox News seems to be a little bit constrained, like they don't want to completely untether to the right or something. What happens when someone goes more tribal them, right? Like goes further right. to the right. And as the as the cable bundle breaks, like. You know, let's say there was no cable bundle and everyone had to go to direct to consumer. I, I think Fox News loses a lot of its value because I don't doubt that there are still super fans who sign up. But do they sign up for the Fox News channel or do they sign up for the, you know, I bet a lot of them would go for an even further to the right Fox News channel. Or maybe some of them go to a little to the left Fox News channel. So you could see how that tribalism and that unbundling could actually really hurt Fox News. Now, they're still the biggest voice, and they've got a great position in the cable channel, but I do think those are, like, some of the red flags you have to look at, and you have to wonder, like, how how does that look for them over time? And it, it's very difficult to tell. I, I think they've got a great brand, and they've got a great position, but, it, you know, all these red flags, not red flags, but there are a lot of these open questions where you could see it all unraveling very quickly. But that's the, <laughs> that's the truth of investing anywhere in the largest media sector at this point. Yeah, yeah, no, I just, I just, I just appreciate it because you know, for those, for those that, um, you know, read my stuff and you know, if I'm, I'm bullish on, on Fox. I, I, I think it's important to get other people's contrary opinions, even if it's not, you know, super bearish. It's just, hey, you know what? This might not turn out the way it is. So, you know, I just appreciate that kind of red teaming aspect. So yeah, let's the, go ahead. Just, just one more on Fox News. You know, the other thing for Fox News is when the they have the Fox News. Uh, I want to say all access, but it's the Fox News super team. Uh, direct to consumer channel, direct yes. to consumer thing they, they're doing. And you know, when they launched that, I thought the early results were kind of positive. And just something I've recently noticed, I you don't hear them talking as much about it anymore, which it maybe maybe there's just other things going on. But you know, to me, it, it's just a little bit of a red flag because at some point the bundle probably unwinds or you need like a little bit of growth driver. And if they're not able to to transition these people into, you know, CBS All Access, people sign up for that to get access to the originals. But if people aren't signing up to get extra extra Hannity or something, I do wonder if that's speaking a little bit to it's going to be difficult to extend the kind of Fox brand outside of the cable bundle. Yeah. And it's almost as if no news is actually bad news, right? Because you're, if you're, because if you're a management team, you want every excuse you can to start touting some of the new things that you've done. Yep. And so, We've, you know, not saying that is almost, you know, revealing your hand. Yeah, I, I mentioned we're big investors in the cable sector, and for a while the big the big worry was Verizon is rolling out a 5G broadband direct to the home product, and this uh, it rolled out in October 2018, and the lead up to it, Verizon was talking about it, and they were hyping it up, all of this sort of stuff, and then they rolled it out, and then you never heard you never really heard them mention it again, and in that case, I was kind of like, oh yeah, oh yeah, if this was going well, 
they'd be talking about all the time. The fact it's not going, the fact uh, they're not saying anything, that's all the news you need to know. And sure enough, you, you know, six months later, you start hearing, oh, it, it can only reach like 5% of the households they thought it could, and the experience is bad, and it's getting no subscribers. So, yeah, if they're not talking about it, it, it makes me a little worried they're having issues there. But hey, I, you know, I wouldn't want to bet against them. I, I just think, uh, it, it, there are some there are some concerns I have that I think investing is really a game of conviction and being able to build that conviction and I just right. haven't built the conviction there yet. Right. Let's transition now into kind of I think I think this might be your favorite topic just because I'm getting the idea that you're you know a very big sports fan and so let's chat about investing in sports rights in the public markets and so you mention I think it's three ways or four so you've got publicly traded sports teams mm-hmm. you have publicly traded sports which is like wwe wfona and then you have you could buy an rsn such as msgn or sbgi or you can look at the networks fox or abc because they have exposure to the sports rights but you know after we just talked about fox and abc it seems like the logic here is if the value is in the sports rights and if the value is in that sports content, everything's going to flow downstream eventually to the sports teams and who controls the sports teams. So where are you most excited in terms of sports right investing and where do you think the big money is going to be made if you want to play this thematic idea over time? Yeah, so I think we hit on a little bit with the networks, but I think the money gets made where eventually if you – the sports fran- the sports franchises and the sports leagues, they control their rights, right? And they license them out to the ABC or the RSNs of the world for five to seven years at a time. But if you think sports rights and that need to drive live attention and this all this viewer passion and everything, if you think that continues to go up and up and up, then the place to play it is through buying one of the sports franchises or the sports leagues. And unfortunately, <laughs> there aren't many sports teams that you and I can buy ourselves. Uh, yeah. You know, but there are a couple, and I, I think all of the value from that will accrue to them over time. And I think you're seeing, I, we mentioned Amazon UK earlier, I think you're seeing in a world where if you get direct consumer data, there are lots of ways to monetize that, and that's extremely valuable, building that direct consumer relationship. And the, one of the best ways to do that is brands people are super passionate about, and probably the brands most people are passionate about are sports teams. And I think that value continues to accrue to sports teams over time. What would be the, you know, one thing you would look for in terms of, um, you know, an investment? Like, let's say you're looking at sports teams, the publicly traded sports teams, you know, BATRA, MSG, ManU. What do you look for in particular when kind of doing your due diligence on those sports teams? Is there anything you do differently than 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 the non-sports investments that kind of help you get an edge in terms of determining which one might be the better idea? Yeah, so, you know... I guess the overarching thing, and I think I mentioned this earlier, I don't like to invest in things where you just do a simple quant screen and you look at it and say, oh, this is six times price to earnings. I'm going to yep. buy this. Like, I think the really cool things about sports teams are when you look at their current income statements, for the most part, they're, it, you know, it's a franchise trades for it's worth five billion dollars and it makes one hundred million dollars per year. And you would say, why in the heck would anyone why in the heck would anyone buy that? That's 50 times earnings. And yeah. there's a lot of reasons. You know, there's a lot of things that an income statement can't capture about a sports team. First of all, if I owned a sports team and I wanted it to be really pro- profitable, I could probably make that happen, right? Like uh, most, I, I think actually the Redskins, if I remember correctly, there was an article talking about how much money uh, Dan Snyder makes from the Redskins. But, you know, if I wanted to, I could just pay the minimum, se- pay the uh, kind of salary floor every year. Most teams pay around what the salary cap is. If I paid the salary floor, 
my team's going to be more profitable. I could skimp on marketing and just kind of take my revenue share and all these sort of things. Like sports teams could make a lot of money if you wanted to, if you wanted to run them purely as a piggy bank, but that's not the way to run a sports team because you're going, while you might get a lot of cash flow in the short term, you're not going to maximize its long-term value. The long-term value is captured. You know, look at the Warriors. Their value went from a billion to $3 billion because they won a couple championships. They put one of the greatest teams of all time. They can use that to draw over time. They increase their uh, advertising revenue and their partnership revenue. They use that to build a new stadium. And guess what? The new stadium you, you build, you buy all the land around it before you build that new stadium. And all that land goes up in values by multiples, right? So the sports team can be used to kind of increase value in a lot of other kind of uh, uh, tangential ways that don't get captured. And we haven't even talked about the tax write-offs associated with sports teams and kind of the political power that comes from owning a sports team. You look at Steve Cohen just bought the Mets and the front page of the New York Post is Steve Cohen, savior of New York or something, right? Like, <laughs> talk about a way to talk about a way to whitewash your reputation. Like he hadn't even completed the purchase and he's just got a headline that says he's the savior of New York, right? So yep. there's lots of things with sports teams that I, an income statement can't capture that it creates so much value that aren't there. So anyway, I, I don't know where we're going, but I, th- those are the things that really attract me to investing in sports teams overall. Yeah, no, and it's, you know, I've seen this, I've seen this firsthand too, as, as a, you know, DC sports fan in general, seeing the Nats win the world series was actually really fun. Um, I never thought I'd see a championship in DC until 2018 with the caps, which was surprising. And then, yeah, and now you get year, two. <laughs> yeah. So I'm feeling really spoiled. Um, but it's 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 so interesting because in and around DC where 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 the new national stadium was built, um, you know, around the Navy Yards, that used to be one of the worst areas of DC in terms of crime, murder, and you, it 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 exactly goes to what you're talking about. You plop a stadium in there, and immediately everything around it starts getting better. New apartments come in, um, high rises, really fancy stuff, shops, restaurants, jobs. It's just it's just so interesting how you plan a stadium somewhere and then just watch this you know, ripple effect percolate throughout the entire community. Yep. Yep. Let's talk about MSG in terms of the spinoff. So have you, have you done a lot of research into the entertainment business? Uh, Cause I know with that spinoff, you're going to get, um, you know, attached to that. I think there's going to be like the New York Rangers um, team and then the New York Knicks. So are you, are you excited about the spinoff? Yeah. So I, the reason I'm, I'm excited about the spinoff for a lot of things, but you know, the overarching view for MSG is right now their enterprise value is, let's just make the numbers really easy. Their enterprise value is about $5 billion, right? And the Knicks, I think Forbes values them at around 3.6 billion. And the Rangers, I think Forbes just came out with their valuation. And I think they were valued at about 1.5 or $1.6 billion. So, uh, you know, the enterprise value of MSG is about equal to what Forbes values the Knicks and the Rangers at. And what I'm excited about with MSG overall is, A, we've done lots of works on sports teams, and sports teams go for significant premiums to what the Forbes valuations values them at. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, if I put the Redskins up for sale, I mentioned Steve Cohen bought the Mets and he got the King of New York, the Savior of New York headline, right? right. If I put the Redskins up for sale and you bought the Redskins, you would be a hero in Washington, D.C. If you've been a lifelong Redskin fan, you'd be a hero in your hometown. And guess what? You're only going to have that opportunity to do that and get that hero reputation once. So it encourages incredibly, incredibly aggressive bidding, right? You've got one shot at this trophy asset that for many people 
you've you've loved all your life. You know, Steve Cohen, he'd been I, I believe he'd been a Mets fan his entire life. He grew up. But I, I think that was the articles that were getting priced. So if you're a Redskins fan, you've got one shot to buy and be the fr- the hero of your hometown. You've got one shot to kind of live your childhood dreams and and uh, kind of manage the Redskins to the championship. You're going to pay up for that. Uh, and then uh, the great thing about buying a sports franchise is you get to write off all the purchase price over 15 years as a tax shield. So you might you might pay three billion for an asset that Forbes just valued it too, but guess what? You just got a one billion dollar tax shield. So that, that's pretty nice. Uh, but yeah, so MSG, you know, I think you're paying the Forbes price for the Knicks and Rangers. I think the Knicks and Rangers, especially the Knicks, I think if they were put up for sale, I think they would get five billion dollars pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on top of that, you get thrown in, you get MSG, the arena, you know, the only arena in Manhattan that occupies a full block of. Uh, right in kind of prime Manhattan. You get the form over in LA, which they bought a couple, they bought in the early 2010s for, they put about a hundred million dollars into it. And by all accounts, it's been a smashing success. It's probably worth $250 million today. You get the Rockettes, which, you know, they're kind of, uh, they're a historic brand. They, they sell out ever, they sell all their Christmas shows for two months on a row. They, uh, I think they mint about, I think it's like 20, I, I can't remember the exact number, but I think they make about $30 million in operating income per year. I mean, that's basically wow. annuity alike. Uh, the dream would be they tried a couple of years ago to roll out the Rockettes into a summer show as well. If you could kind of extend the brand past just the Christmas show, oh, yeah. that, would be the, that would be the real dream. The summer yeah, the show, operating leverage would just go through the roof. Exactly. They failed miserably at the summer show, but I, I think they're thinking about trying again at some point in the near future. And, you know, if you could ever kind of, hit hit that chord that would be you know obviously the rockets value would go up and, and you get some other things thrown in there you get uh, I, I didn't even mention you get a billion dollars or so in cash thrown in there so you start adding it all up and i think the sum of the parts is a lot higher than today's value particularly when you factor in the premium that the knicks and the rangers would get uh and then the spinoffs coming up and yeah we're excited because you know originally the spinoff was going to be they were going to the entertainment side, which owns MSG, which is going to build the spheres, which we can talk about in a second, is going to own the Rockettes and everything, was going to spin out the sports teams. And I, I was a little frustrated with that because if you spin out the sports team, there's a you know two-year IRS lock on being able to sell the sports teams. And the entertainment side was going to maintain, retain a third ownership of the sports teams and use that to fund the build out of the spheres. But the new way they're doing it, the sports teams are actually going to spill out the, spin out the entertainment side. And the sports teams will uh, will be they're going to be 100 percent of the entertainment side won't maintain any of the sports teams. And I really like that because, A, now you'll have a direct play on the Knicks and the Rangers and B, uh, you know, because the sports teams are spinning out the entertainment side. If they ever did want to sell the Knicks and Rangers, they could do that with without huge headaches from the IRS. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, let's let's go through just because you kind of brought it up a little bit. Um, what is what is the sphere and you know what's what's the importance there yeah so the sphere is there they actually want to build two but it's basically a state-of-the-art arena they're going to build one in las vegas and then they want to build one in london as well and it's a state-of-the-art arena that's shaped like a sphere of course and their their view is uh they want it to be kind of the most technolo- technologically sophisticated uh, arena for musicians in the world. And it's going to be a sphere on the outside of the sphere. There's going to be LCD lights, which they think they can, you know, they can sell advertising and they can project images and everything on. And then on the inside, they want the technology to be so good that no matter where you sit in the sphere, you'll get kind of per stick acoustics from whatever 
live band you're listening to and all this sort of stuff. And they're building it in Las Vegas. So they think, hey, you know, we can do during the day, we can have conventions and expos in here. And then at night we can have touring bands. And there's going to be we'll sell premium tickets. And you look at like uh, T-Mobile Arena just got built and they've been able to sell like every night. They think there's going to be so much uh, so much business there. Uh, you know, I. I am more skeptical to me. You're building an arena. An arena is a, a pretty risky development bet. Yeah, right. it's nice that you've, you know, they've got the partnership with MGM and they're going to get some tax breaks and everything. Uh, it, it's pretty risky to me. I think the company would push back and say, hey, we've done two arena redevelopments recently. We redeveloped MSG. They, they did a renovation in the early 2010s. And people thought that that renovation was uh, was a waste of money, and I, I think they sunk they sunk a lot of money into it. I, I, is it a billion dollars? I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but they they've argued that the returns from that are uh, have been mid double digits, and I, I think that's probably right. You know, MSG looks good. It's obviously sold out basically every night. They have events going there and stuff. They they had WrestleMania a few years ago. They they still get tons of business there. Uh, and then they did the forum where people thought the forum was a waste of money. They renovated it. And now it's one of the best uh, properties in the country. And I think it spits off pretty consistent cash flow out there. They've probably made, again, double digits returns on their money there. So I think they would point out, hey, you guys doubted us twice and we've got really attractive returns from everything we've done. We know what we're doing. Right. I would probably respond with pushback. Yeah, but MSG, like that was an arena and it's the only arena in Manhattan. Like, you already owned it. You were kind of starting on second base there. And yeah. the form, you know, that was a small bet and it, you did well. You leveraged your relationships. It's done really well. But, you know, building a sphere from the ground up, that is a especially one that's new. That is a completely different beast than anything we're talking about. So I, I'm very skeptical of the investment. But if it pays off, you know, you, you could see you could see how they can uh, you could see how they could make a lot of money from it. I'm very skeptical. Yeah, and I wonder, I wonder what it's like. Even if you, you know, when you go to underwrite this this new spinoff, if you just assume, you know, if you give a if you give a terminal value of the sphere, you know, is zero dollars, you know, what what that still looks like in kind of a worst case scenario for the sphere, and then you know, kind of valuing it that way going forward. You know, so that's the, I don't, it's difficult, right? I, I don't think you you give a terminal value it, with the sphere, like they're going to sink. I think. I think they're kind of settling in the $1.5 billion range for okay. uh, this fear. It's tough. They're they're arguing with their contractor. You know, a contractor gets paid cost plus. So a contractor is obviously incentivized to kind of say your cost is $2 billion because then their plus is $200 million versus if it's cost plus and they said $1 billion, it'd be $100 million, right? Yes. Uh, so they're kind of arguing back and forth there. You know, the way I've been looking at it is let's say they sink. Let, just make the math easy. Let's say they sink a billion dollars into the sphere. How much money do you think they they burned on the sphere? Uh, I've I've been kind of I guess base case and just say all right let's just say it's value neutral they don't create or destroy any value I think if you were really bearish you could say all right they've destroyed three hundred million dollars it's tough to see a way that the sphere would be you know they lit all the money on fire because mm-hmm. once you've built it it is an asset you're probably going to be able to put sh- I can't see a reason why they wouldn't be able to put shows in there and like it's pretty much mainly fixed sunk costs like. Why wouldn't it spit off some cash flow? I, I can't see like the, the super negative scenarios where it's worth zero. I, I think your big worry would be if there's a mammoth cost overrun and the sphere costs two billion instead of a billion or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's 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 definitely fair. Um, I wanna I wanna pivot a little bit because one of the things that I when I was reading 
in your part three. And, you know, this isn't necessarily directly related to sports rights, but but it is in a way in terms of so, you know, if all the value goes to sports teams, one of your one of your kind of theses here is having these sports teams go direct to consumer. And what that means where, you know, it's now it's the sports teams that are kind of plowing money into R&D or plowing money into marketing and kind of tech and, 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 and trying to, you know, monetize their own fan bases. And you, you mentioned something interesting in light of that where you basically asked the question, does this remove the idea or does this remove the incentive of teams trying to tank for playoff spots? Or, yeah. or, or, or I'm sorry, not 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 playoff spots, draft picks, um, salary cap stuff like, you know, talk about that because I because I think that, you know, it's something that you definitely have a passion about uh, because it says that you believe baseball is a huge mammoth tanking problem. And so, you know, what does this look like if if we start to go direct to consumer with these sports teams? Yeah. So right now, you know, for people who aren't super familiar with uh, sports, like especially in the MLB and the NBA, teams have realized the best way to win a championship is if you if you are a big time loser, then the leagues rewards you with a very high draft pick and uh so in the mlb and nba they've realized hey be as big a loser as you possibly can be for a couple of seasons get some high draft picks get some really good players in there and then three years from now you'll be a huge champion and like the astros uh are, are the, probably the most famous case of this and the MLB, like four or five years ago, they were a disaster. Right. They got all of these all of these super good draft picks and everything. And three years, four years later, they win the World Series. And now, you know, this year they were one of the best teams in the history of baseball. They won. Yep. They won one hundred and seven and fifty five. I think they, they lost in game seven of the World Series, if I remember correctly. But yes, you know, they're a super team off the basis of three or four years ago when they were a disaster. And in the NBA, uh Philadelphia went through the process, as they called it, where they fielded one of the worst teams in basketball history for three or four years. And because of that, they got the number one draft pick several years in a row. And now they're championship contenders. And, you know, it, it kind of it doesn't make sense that you're incentivizing teams that you're as a team, you're incentivized to put out the worst product you possibly can in order to become a championship contender, because it's not a lot of fun for your fans when they're going to games and they know that they're going to lose every day. You know, I think there was a stat like four of the worst teams in baseball history were fielded this season during the MLB wow. because everybody's going for a tanking. You know, I'm just looking, the Tigers were 47 and 114, a winning wow. percentage of under 30%. I think that's an all time low. I, I don't, I don't know for sure, but you know, it doesn't make sense. If you think about these teams, they're supposed to be competitive. They're supposed to be competing so that their fans will want to go to the games and they'll want to see winning and they'll buy more tickets and they'll make the playoffs and they'll get a lot more revenue. But they don't have to do that right now because their RSN rights are locked in, right? MSGN is going to pay the Knicks and the Rangers $100 million, $110 million per year, no matter how the Knicks and the Rangers do. Their mm. national TV deals are locked in. ESPN is going to pay the NBA $500 million per season, whether that whether the NBA is fielding a great product or a shitty product, as long as they fill some product. So right now, so much of the revenue base is locked in that the teams can go out and tank. But if all the teams went direct to consumer and they had to go to the consumers every season and say, hey pay $100 per season to watch all of my games this year. And if they went into the tank, consumers would just say, nah, I don't want to see it this year. I'll watch it three years from now when your team's great. <laughs> and all of a sudden, like, you can't put out that shitty product because it's hitting the owner really hard right in their wallet, right? That's so interesting. And that's such a cool dynamic because it, 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 it kind of brings into the idea of, you know, real skin in the game where you kind of have this dichotomy now where – NFL owners or, you know, if you own a team, you still make money regardless if the product's great or not. 
or if it's, you know, if people are resonating with it or not, which is so kind of backwards in terms of, you know, just like the general capitalistic society where, you know, you are rewarded if you produce good work or if you, you know, make a great product. But in the current model, that that's just not the case. And so I just think it's so fascinating where, you know, we could potentially see a world where NFL owners have skin in the game and, you know, what they do matters and the fans have a direct impact more so than 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 previous years. Yeah, and look, I think they always do have some skin in the game, right? Like, I, I'm mm-hmm. sure no owner would come to you and say, yeah, my goal is to never win a championship. But I, I think the issue is the way to win a championship right now is to be as awful as possible for three years. And this would kind of, yeah, you could go that route if you wanted to, but guess what? You're going to lose hundreds of millions of dollars for multiple years on end in subscriber revenue because nobody's going to want to watch your games. And right now, they simply don't lose that because all of their rights are locked in. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so, you know, we're kind of, we're kind of wrapping up on, on time here. Um, you know, we've, we, we, we've gone through part, part one, part two, part three, and I, you know, I've just, I've learned so much in this hour conversation. And it's funny because this is actually our first phone to phone conversation. Um, we've, we've spent much of our time just over Twitter. And so, uh, you know, I really, I really want to ask just, I guess, a couple, a couple personal questions. One, um, I know you're a huge fan of John Malone, and uh, in a recent tweet, you sent a screenshot of kind of your reply. I think I, I think it was in Value Investors Club where someone made the notion, and I'm, and I'm paraphrasing, so you know, forgive me if this isn't exactly what it said. But basically, this, this person commented and said, you know, I don't think John Malone has that great of a track record. Basically, yeah, so um, it, it was the, he doesn't have a great recent track record. Right. I, I think yeah. it would be kind of indisputable to say that he's got, <laughs> you know, if you went back to the 90s and you talked uh, all, all the stuff he did then, I don't think anybody would yeah. argue with that. But it, it was recent track record. They called him. And, you know, you, this had shades of Warren Buffett in 1998 being called a dinosaur who didn't get the the cable com- or who didn't get the Internet companies. They they said he's a dinosaur. He doesn't he can't do it in today's day and age. Right. So take us through kind of your rebuttal on that, because, you know, I'm up, I'm going to link it in the show notes. But for people that haven't read it yet, just kind of take us through how you answered that question and kind of where you stand on 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 John Malone's you know, recent success yeah. and, and, and recent track record. Well, you know, I think my first thought was, oh, like maybe this is a little eye opening. Like I wanted to come into it with uh, open eyes and like kind of start a dialogue. Maybe I'm wrong. Like I've got great respect for John Malone. I think he still throws a, a really mean fastball. But it, is it possible I'm off? And over the past couple of years, he he's not as good as he used to be so I was just kind of you know off the top of my head thinking through uh the past couple of years and you know really quickly I was like oh well he invested in Sirius XM I think the cost basis over at Sirius XM is like 34 cents or 40 or 50 cents or something you know it's really low he invested in that in distress at the depths of the financial crisis when they were just doing their they had just finished their merger with uh Sirius and XM and now the stock trades for $7 per share. And I think he's gotten more in dividends than his cost basis at this point. So I kind of looked at that. And I was like, well, you, you, you know, investing is not a game of in baseball. You hit a home run or a grand slam and the most can be worth four, four runs. But, you know, investing, if you buy, if you invest in Instagram at a $1 million valuation and it gets bought out by Facebook at a billion, you know, you've just made 1000 times. So you can hit a 1000 yeah. run home run. Well, Sirius XM, you know, getting your cost base back in dividends and having something worth 20 X. That that's the equivalent of probably a, a 20 run grand slam. Right. So yeah. you have to ignore that. And then you have to ignore, oh, well, he he bought Charter and he rolled up Charter, Time Warner, Bright House in the past seven years. Like that's been not a grand slam like the distress serious investment, but that's been a home run. So, you, you know, you kind of have to start ignoring things that happened in the seven to time, 10 year ago time frame. And that right there suggests, hey, the, the guy's still got it pretty recently. So 
you look at the recent investments and you say, well, three years ago, he bought Formula One. And, you know, Formula One, the early, it's still early. Obviously, you bought a sports league. Like, that's a long-term, multi-decade investment. But it it's just starting to look like they're, you know, the stock's done really well. But they're just starting to kind of build up some operating momentum. And it's just starting to look good. So you look at that and you say, oh, that was a pretty good investment. And the Discovery Scripts merger, you know, I, I think Discovery... It's the the legacy media company that owns the Discovery Network. You know, they have Food TV, they've got HGTV, a bunch of these other things. Um, I, I think it was in a lot of trouble and it bought scripts. And I think people thought, oh, two legacy media companies combining, this is a recipe for zero. And they did it with all debt. And I think people thought, you know, this is leveraging the company. But it turned out the thesis was we combined these and we're, we were big enough and we've got enough scale where we're important enough that cable companies can't drop us. And even better, because we're so big, skinny bundles won't be able to launch without having our products. And guess what? That turned out to be right. And, uh, you know, Discovery Stock hasn't been exactly been a screamer, but that's a company saving move that he, he made. And uh, right. th- there were a couple there were a couple others. Oh, DirecTV. You know, he sold it to AT&T four or five years ago. And now that wasn't a Liberty company anymore. But I believe he still had a pretty significant shareholding. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they sell that literally right at the top right before floor cutting <laughs> happens and satellite yeah. tv you know i said we're long cable companies we're not long satellite companies because cable companies while cord cutting they lose video subs they just get they have profitable broadband subs that don't churn guess what satellite doesn't have those profitable broadband customers they sold it to at&t and i think at&t if they tried to resell direct tv today i i'm not sure they would get 25 percent of what oh, i mean at&t at&t is losing so many subscribers from their direct tv purchase like I mean, that couldn't that couldn't have been a worse buy at a worse time for AT&T. You know, I mean, that's just par for the course for AT&T, I would say. But (laughs) uh, yeah. So, you know, and and I think I walked through a couple other examples. And my overall thing was, does he have some are are there some things that he he missed here? Absolutely. But you look at the overall thing, you're like, oh, my God, this guy is still really freaking good. And that's not even to say the deals that he wanted to do, but that he couldn't get done, you know. I think there have been a lot of things that said he tried to buy Netflix uh, at like $20 per share. And he clearly, I think it might have, he didn't see Netflix's strategy originally, because remember, Netflix built up all their value from licensing the Stars movie catalog. Right. So, you know, he didn't see the threat day one, but day 1.5, he saw what was what was happening and he tried to buy it and he got rebuffed. But, you know, I think the man throws an incredibly mean fastball still. And then the thing to me, you know, a the track record is one thing, the recent results, the returns, I, I think they've all been there. But the biggest thing to me is you listen to these uh, interviews he does still, the ones with David Faber around the Liberty Investor Day, yeah. and he so clearly lays out the thesis. And if you go back and listen to, you know, the one two years ago and you kind of invested based on his view of the future, I think you still would have done extremely well. So I think the man still thinks very clearly. I, I think he certainly still got it. Uh, so yeah, I, I think he's I think he's fantastic. Yeah, and 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 the recent interview he did he did with Dave this year, um, it is it is such a good interview, and it's 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 for 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 anybody that really wants to kind of get a little bit more um, you know into the weeds on kind of how he's thinking. I think it's one of I think it's one of the best interviews that I've that I've listened to um, mm-hmm. in in 2019. Yeah. So so let's. Let's kind of wrap it up here with 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 the last question that I ask everybody. Um, you know, at least last question before I get into you know how people can find you and all that all that jazz. Um, and you can't say you can't say John Malone, unfortunately, for this question. So, if there's one person you could take to dinner, past 
or present, uh, who would it be and why? <sighs> it's a tough one. There's so many fun answers here. You know, uh, I I just hear crazy stories about Will Ferrell. I, I feel like it's a little bit that way, but man, I feel like it would be really fun to go to dinner with Will Ferrell. That would be a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I'd love to, uh, John Malone and Greg Maffei, love to go go to yep. lunch or dinner with them and just chat media with them. Obviously, it's a sector I'm pretty passionate about. I'd love to go with uh, James Dolan and just tell him, like, why aren't you selling the Knicks? You're awful. <laughs> Your passion isn't here. I would do the same for you and just go with Dan Snyder. But yeah, yeah look, I, I think the world's filled with interesting people. And uh, I, I think there's tons of people I'd love to go to dinner. It'd be a lot of fun. I would love to go to dinner with Dan Snyder and uh, just really kind of ask him if I could buy the team one day when I have enough money. <laughs> you know, the only thing is it, it'd be like Dolan. I've got such a negative opinion of him. It, it would, yeah. it, it would just be awkward and he's a, a little petulant child. So I'm sure it would devolve really quickly, but yeah, well, an interesting couple minutes. Yeah. Well, apparently Snyder's not much different, so no. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure it would be, I'm sure it would be just the same. So Andrew, where can people find you? I know you're about to go on your honeymoon, so you may not be respond. I mean, hopefully you're not super responsive on, on, <laughs> yeah, on the I don't think it'll be crazy responsive, but you know, I, I think the best place is uh, obviously you and I connected or Twitter, just Twitter. I think I'm Andrew Rangely. That's range, like a driving range, L E Y. That's probably the best place. We write stuff over at uh, yet another value blog and uh, work for Rangely Capital, which is where the Rangely and Andrew Rangely comes. So you can find all of our stuff at rangelycapital.com or on the blog or through Twitter. And yeah, those are the best ways. Awesome. Well, Andrew, I wish you the best honeymoon. Uh, relax. Try not to look at too many media stocks. Try not to look at too many markets. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy wherever you're going. And uh, I definitely look forward to having you on again. And thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me.